0: Good morning, church. My name is Ellie. I'll be doing our scripture reading for us this morning. We'll be reading in Philippians 3, 12 through 4, 1. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything and if any if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's word for us today.
1: If you would, just bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we ask that you would shape our minds and our hearts, even now as we look to your word. Give us the kind of inner thought lives that will sustain our joyful endurance, even through trials and suffering and opposition down here. Carry us along, Lord, with the hope of your resurrection life in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a show of hands, who? Would like to go on a five-mile run today, right after service? I know there'd be some some of you weirdos. I knew it. Who just enjoyed doing that for no good reason? I knew it. Kind of messing up my introduction, but that's okay. Um, let's just say, let's just say, you don't even go home. You don't get changed. We just do the benediction and we go outside and we just start running for five miles and the goal is not even to be competitive it's not even a race you just the goal is just to finish who would be up for something like that other than these <laughs> other than these few okay i thought now let's just say that that anyone who does simply finish this run will receive 10 million Dollars, Okay? Uh, if that were the case, again, show of hands, who'd be interested in running five miles right after service today? Thank you. Right? Some of you guys are still a little conflicted, like, uh, you know, like 10 million? I don't know. Right? Still, far more. Now, I, I want you to imagine uh, what would be running through your mind if you ran five miles today right after service under the first set of circumstances. Uh, You just agreed to do this, run today, right away after service with no particular goal or prize in mind. I could tell you I would not get but 100 yards before I started to think, What am I doing? This is so hard. I am not a runner. It's going to take forever. It's hot. I'm in jeans, right? (laughs) But if I ran in this second race, where whoever finishes even gets $10 million. Listen, it still may be pretty terrible. I can't tell you how it would go, who knows how it would go, but I can tell you what I'd be thinking. I'm gonna be rich, I'm gonna be rich, I'm gonna be rich, right? And here's here's the point, we are usually willing to do very challenging things for the right prize. And, And as we do those challenging things, It is that prize in our minds that sustains us and compels us to keep going. This is basically Paul's point in our passage today. Uh, If our minds are set on earthly things like earthly status or comfort, for example, well then of course we're never going to press on through earthly suffering for the sake of Christ. That's not what we're in it for. On the other hand, if our minds are set on the things of heaven where our true citizenship lies, if we strain forward toward this prize, as he says, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, then we will be able, as he also says, to press on, to hold true, to stand firm thus in the Lord. In other words, the idea this morning is, is this. We need a heavenly mindset to press on through our earthly trials. So first, I want to show us this idea here in our text. And then, once we've seen it, I want to use the text to help us apply this concept to life today. And so last week, Paul made a really bold and very idealistic claim. He basically suggested that nothing can sustain our joy through earthly suffering and trials quite like knowing Christ. The the surpassing worth of knowing him far exceeds any kind of confidence we could place in earthly stuff like our flesh and so on. And once we understand this, he said, we'll be able to rejoice in in suffering because we we can kind of let go of all this stuff that we used to really care all about, right? Our earthly lives and status, we can kind of count all of that as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ our Lord. Now, as a Christian, that should, without question, ring true for us. Heard from some of you even last week. It it did. We have experienced this in the Christian life. And yet, it is also worth noting what Paul said last week is also quite idealistic. I'll I'll put it this way. Living as if that is actually true is admittedly easier said than done. Is it not? Which may be why Paul felt the need to qualify what he said last week here in what he says this week. It's not as though Paul is backpedaling or hedging on this value of knowing Christ, but in our passage today, it does seem like Paul is at least acknowledging the many tensions and challenges of living this upward life down here in a sinful, fallen world that's often set against us. He ended our passage last week by explaining why he was so willing to count all these things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, And it turns out he did this so that by any means possible, he said, he might attain the resurrection from the dead. Did you see that? So so Paul let go of his earthly life in order to be resurrected with this King Jesus and to join in his new heavenly exalted life. But then here in verse 12, he qualifies that a bit by saying, not that I have already obtained this or, or, or am already perfect. You see that? In other words, he's saying, listen, I realize our day-to-day experience, it, it, it is more complicated than that. I, I understand that counting our life as lost this, this is, is hard, and, and sometimes it feels incredibly unfulfilling and incomplete. It does for me too even, I think Paul's trying to say. But even in spite of these tensions, even in spite of these trials, this opposition, this rejection, he says, I press on to make this resurrected life My own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So, on one hand, Paul does not have this upward resurrected life yet, at least not in its fullness or in its entirety. He hasn't gotten to the upward exalted part yet, if you will, from chapter two. He's still in this earthly, humble, self giving part of the project. But on the other hand, even though he is suffering, For Paul, notice, it seems well worth it to press on and to make this resurrected life his own someday, especially in light of all that Christ has done for him. This is what guides and shapes his mindset. And from this point on in our passage today, Paul basically describes the kind of mindset we all need to endure the complexities and tensions of this upward life. And his argument is basically this, that we need a heavenly mindset To press on through earthly trials. Especially things like facing rejection because of our faith in Jesus, for instance, or being hated by some. Uh, If we want to endure those kinds of earthly trials, then we will need this kind of heavenly mindset. Look with me, if you will, at, at verse 13. Paul continues by writing... Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, this resurrected life he's talking about, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Church, this was Paul's prize. This is what he fought and ran for, the upward call of God in Christ And I'm convinced the entire message of this letter, frankly, is contained in that one little phrase, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Without carefully reading this letter in its entirety, it's kind of the phrase that you might read and pass over very quickly thinking, well, that's just a cute way to talk about Christianity, right? But it's so much more than that. This is where we have to take Paul's theology serious. These are not just nice, happy spiritual thoughts. These aren't just words he's saying. He really believes and means these things. Remember, he even told us about King Jesus' upward call back in chapter 2. Do you remember this? It was the centerpiece of the letter. Even though Jesus was equal to God in all ways, he did not grasp onto or cling to that equality. Instead, he humbly came down from heaven not seeking his own interests, but seeking our interests, even at great cost to himself. He obeyed the will of his father, even to the point of death, let alone death on a cross. And therefore, Paul says, because of that heavenly humility, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That's an upward call. Another way to say it is that God called Jesus back up to heaven where he's always belonged and deserved to reign. And the idea here is that by exalting Jesus in this way, God has not only lifted him up, he was also lifting us up. That is, those of us who rely on King Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, or as Paul just said last week, those who glory in King Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For us, church, for the church of Jesus Christ, his upward call that we saw in chapter 2 has now become our upward call. By exalting Jesus, by lifting him up, God is also calling us upward with him. And according to Paul, that truth was not just some abstract theological concept. For Paul, that truth was the centerpiece of his very existence. I think it's what he meant when he said to live is Christ. For Paul, this truth that he shared in the upward call of Christ was the ultimate prize in his life. It was the singular focus and goal of his earthly life. It was the ultimate hope that consumed his mind. It was the truth that cut through all the complicated layers of his earthly suffering and rejection, it was this truth that drove him to press on and stand firm through it all. He hadn't quite attained that resurrected life yet, sure, but his mind was singularly set on it. Forgetting that elite religious life he once had, leaving that behind, he says, Paul strained forward toward this glorious upward call. And as he even says toward the end, he was waiting the day when this exalted King Jesus of heaven would return when he'd come back down to do what? So that he could transform his earthly body to be like his glorious body. Paul is talking about the resurrection. He is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He is talking about the life to come. That right there, the resurrected life to come is the hope that dominates the inner life of God's upward people. It is the thought that will compel us and motivate us to press on through all kinds of earthly suffering and rejection. Now, some might suggest the opposite. Some might suggest, oh, you know, you can't actually be too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. You've heard people say this before? I hate that. It's not true. Almost as if, You know, any Christian that people disapprove of or has a hard time following Jesus here must be doing it wrong. They must be immature in some way, just missing it. But as Paul says, let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. In other words, if immature believers think this mindset is not really important, if they want to define following Jesus in some way that makes suffering optional, well, just wait. God will straighten that out in them too. Anyone with any real experience pressing on in this upward life will tell you we need a heavenly mindset to press on through our earthly trials. And for us today as well, church, we are in desperate need of Paul's resurrection mindset. Especially as we face trials like rejection or disdain, disapproval because of our genuine belief in Christ. Uh, Chances are there are people in your life who, if they knew what you truly believed, would lose almost all respect for you. And I know this because I've processed it with some of you. In some cases, you've wrestled with whether or not to believe certain truths for fear of being rejected for those beliefs. But we can see here that if our thought lives are dominated by the hope of our resurrection... Then our earthly lives will be marked by joyful perseverance, whatever trials or rejection may come. And so next, I want us to consider a few marks of this upward resurrected resurrection mindset, rather, that Paul's commending here. Uh, first, I want us to notice those with a resurrection mindset, number one, keep their eyes on the resurrection-minded. That that is other people who also share in this same heavenly mindset. Notice, shortly after commending both Timothy and Epaphroditus two weeks ago, and then after warning the Philippians last week to look out for flesh mutilating dogs, bad leaders, here in verse seventeen, Paul says, "Join in imitating me." So he commends himself as an example. And also he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So clearly the people we look to and the mindset of these people we look to really, really matters. It really matters. And in verse 18, Paul even tells us why it really matters. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I want to bookmark that. We're going to come back and talk more about it later. For now, I want you just to notice how he describes these enemies of the cross. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on what? Earthly things. Things down here, not up there. Now, Paul just told us, remember, to put no confidence in the flesh. Meanwhile, these guys are worshiping their bellies, which basically is a metaphor that actually refers to their cravings or their appetites. But Paul is using that metaphor to shine the spotlight on their relationship to their flesh, to their earthly bodies down here, as opposed to the promise of their resurrected bodies in the life to come. Paul just encouraged us, remember, to to worship by the Spirit and to glory in Christ, he said. Meanwhile, these guys apparently glory in their shame down here. They are so oblivious to to the grave spiritual dangers of sin that they're almost happy about participating in it. Happy to affirm of all those who would. You see, their minds are set on basically anything But the heavenly hope of resurrection. And the whole point is, we should not look to those earthly minded people or imitate them. Instead, we should look to our brothers and sisters like Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, who were straining forward to this glorious prize of the upward call, even if they meant they had to suffer. And so, with all that in mind, I want us to consider this morning who are you watching and trying to imitate? Who are you looking to? I want to talk to the students, uh, high school, middle school. Obviously, there are any number of people that you could look to and imitate in this way, uh, whether it's your classmates who seem to have everyone's respect uh, or admiration, even though they're basically just out for their own earthly status, not particularly humble, self-giving, or concerned for the things of God. Or whether it's a long list of celebrities or performers or athletes who just seem larger than life to you. Or even if it's just that one kid who's part of that one group that you've really always wanted to be a part of. I'm sure it's tempting to look to each of these people and to try to imitate them. I can relate to this uh, at your age, certainly. And, and really, I have to tell you, it doesn't really change all that much. This is always a temptation to strive after and to imitate the wrong people. But I want to encourage you to look instead to people like your godly Christian parents or to other adult members of this church who know Jesus and want to help you to know Jesus. And here's why. Is the truth is they may not have the earthly status or the allure that these other people seem to have, but frankly, here's what they do have going for them. They actually know you, they love you. And in most cases, more than anything else, what they want for you is this kind of resurrected life that Paul's describing. These kids are, are are the kinds of people we need to look to and imitate. Real, humble Christian men and women who will help you to cultivate this kind of heavenly mindset in your life. The ones who will go there with you The ones who will ask good spiritual questions, not just to annoy you, but because they really care about you. Uh, But what about the rest of us, Uh, the adults? Uh, Who are we looking to and imitating? Uh, Have we let the stresses of this life, like work, for example, or parenting or dating if we're single, have we let these earthly sources of stress drive us away from the Lord and towards basically any kind of escape we can get our minds on. As soon as we have a free minute, do our hearts and our eyes quickly run to our phones, to Instagram, to YouTube, to whatever platform will help us to keep our minds on the things of this world, like that dreamy interior design or travel blog, right? or some content creator who's focused on all of our favorite hobbies. For me, it's like mountain biking, okay? Are we numbing our minds for hours and hours each week by looking to and longing to be like these impressive people who are really, really good at satisfying the cravings and appetites of our bellies, basically? And if so, could it be that we would be far better served by simply getting to know even other members of this church? Uh, who may be nothing like us, frankly. They may have a totally different set of interests, desires, cravings, but they do share this longing for resurrected life with God. And they'd be happy to spend more time with us to cultivate that kind of heavenly mindset. I want to see that if we're constantly looking to those who are confident in the flesh and encourage us to be confident in the flesh, if we're constantly imitating those whose minds are set just on earthly things, we will never have what it takes to press on in this upward life. We will constantly be be crippled by this inner voice that says, shouldn't this be easier? Couldn't we make it a little easier if we just, church, we need resurrection-minded friends that we can look to for help pressing on in the upward life. And next, those with this resurrection mindset, number two, see earthly suffering as a heavenly friend. Now, that might be a little jarring to hear. Um, I'm not talking just about any kind of suffering. Again, we've qualified this a couple times in the series. We're talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. Um, But this point is admittedly subtle in the text, but the more I study Philippians, the more I'm convinced it's one of the primary points that Paul's trying to get across here. The Philippians were grumbling and disputing, likely because of Paul's imprisonment and what it meant for them. Chances are they wanted to avoid that kind of suffering and opposition at all costs. Meanwhile, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He sees that in a much more friendly way. (laughs) Meanwhile, Paul says he's confident Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. He's more friendly even to the idea of dying for Christ. Meanwhile, Paul says, guys, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And the primary example he's given of this humble, joy-filled endurance through trials is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ from chapter 2. He obeyed God even to the point of death, even death On a cross. And the idea here is that we need to stand firm thus in Him when we face all kinds of trials, like He did. In fact, Paul just told us, remember, He longs to become like Christ in His death on the cross. So, with that in mind, in context, to walk as an enemy of Christ, this is really important, does not simply mean to oppose Christianity. It means actually to repackage Christianity in a way that that makes it more digestible, in a way that sort of plucks and weeds out all the need for suffering, trials, humility, self-giving, none of that. It's to walk as an enemy of the cross of Christ is to say, no, 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 if you're actually suffering for being a Christian, like if that's hard for you, and if 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 you're being rejected, for instance, you must be doing it wrong. Right? Good Christian people don't suffer. Good Christian people are wise enough to avoid suffering. And of course the problem with that mindset is that it disqualifies um, Jesus from being a good Christian person. Church, be weary of Christians and churches who give you this impression. If you just go about it in the way they do, you won't ever be despised or rejected like those other Christians will be. They must just not get it. They must be unlike Christ in some important way because the world seems to hate them. Now, could it be that some professing Christians are actually un-Christ-like jerks? Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's hard to deny. There are plenty of other passages that speak to that. But it could also be, hear me, it could also be That part of being like Jesus, particularly in his death, is being rejected by this world. Like Jesus was rejected by this world. Are you willing to go there in your mindset? Do you, like Paul, see the heavenly glory of being rejected here on earth for the sake of Christ? Do you see it that way? Is that a friendly concept to you? Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, for the word that is the message of the cross, it is folly to those who are perishing. They look at this message of a crucified God-man and they think, how is that good? I don't want to be like this guy. But, he says, to us who are being saved, that very same message of the cross it is the power of God. Those with this humble, heavenly mindset understand, and, and frankly, they embrace this fact, that God often uses our suffering and rejection to accomplish his ultimate purposes. And in that sense, they are friends of the cross rather than enemies of it. Those with a more earthly, self-exalting mindset see no glory in the suffering for Christ. Uh, No matter how intently they gaze at his cross, they will never actually take theirs up and follow him. And so I wanna ask us this morning, how do you tend to think about suffering for Christ? What is your mindset in that particular idea? I want you to imagine bringing a friend to church, sitting through the service with them, getting coffee afterwards, and then hearing, oh man, I'm sorry, but that is not for me. I'm surprised you go to that church. I was super uncomfortable. They gave me the impression that me and, and even my friends are sinful. They said all this awkward stuff about who God is and what it means to be made right with him. Like they kind of know that they, they know these things. Look, I'm sorry, but if that's what you believe, I want nothing to do with any of that. Imagine this is your experience. What if your relationship with that friend really changes after that visit to church? What if no matter how many humble and gentle attempts you've made, to help her see the goodness and the glory of following this crucified God-man, she just doesn't see it. She hates the message. She's starting to look at you a little funny. To the extent that even you are faced with a choice to press on with us in the upward life or to quietly walk away and save face with that friend. I don't think we have to guess what Paul would encourage us to do in this case. I think he's actually done it right here in this passage. Brothers, sisters, he says, join in imitating me. Imitate him. Imitate Paul, the one who's in prison for preaching Christ. Imitate him. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to that example. For many, he says, of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Many see no value in being rejected or despised by this world. None. Uh, many have no interest in suffering for the sake of this crucified king. Guys, I want to tell you, this is hard stuff. <laughs> it really is. There are many, many temptations for you to hear what I'm saying, even right now, and think, nah, nah, nah. I used to go to this really successful big church one time, and it didn't really work that way there. Because they avoided, they kind of avoided all these things heavy theological topics. They never talked about anything hard that happened in the life of the church, and so I wonder if they might just be more wise or something like that, maybe more mature. Hear me. If we preach this gospel and strive side by side to have more faith in it, if we share together in this upward call of God in Christ, we will suffer and be rejected by some. If we do, it will be painful, it will be hard, it will be very tempting to give up and to just quietly walk away, but we should hear Paul's words ringing in our ear, if anyone is mature, let him think in this way. And if in anything he thinks otherwise, God will reveal that to him also. I want to hear you say, "I, I get it. This stuff can be really, really hard. It's hard for me too. But there is something, there is something that should compel us and motivate us to press on together no matter what may come. There's a prize we're straining towards, and that prize is our final point. Those who have this heavenly mindset, third, and most importantly, are longing and waiting for resurrected life. This is what carries them through earthly suffering and rejection with humility and joy. Last week, Paul said that he suffered the loss of all earthly things for a very specific reason, so that by any means possible, he would attain the resurrection from the dead. You hear the urgency. Any means possible, Paul longed for the resurrection. While people's minds were consumed, many of them, by the things of this world, the cravings of their bellies, Paul was awaiting a Savior from heaven, The Lord Jesus Christ, who someday would transform his long dead, lowly body to be like Jesus' glorious resurrected body. Paul was waiting for the resurrection. He was straining forward toward that prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So, could it be, could it be, the reason we struggle to endure earthly rejection with joy in this life? is that we are not nearly expectant enough or even focused enough on the life to come. I want us to consider this morning, how often do you reflect even on the life to come? How often? This is probably one of my biggest theological pet peeves. We we tend not to think very seriously about the life to come, and there's a lot of reasons to that. But a lot of times, people think, "Oh, that end time stuff—it's so contentious. Everyone disagrees. Can we really even know anything about it? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, right? So let's just not think about it. And as a result, here's what happens: is that we're confused by all this imagery and messages of harps and angels and this disembodied spirit life, and we just don't even know what to make heads or tails of this stuff. Am I going to be an angel? Am I going to play a harp? But the result is that it stunts our spiritual imagination of the life to come. And and really, in light of this passage, what it does is it robs us of this essential hope that we have. I want you to notice something. Paul knew, for whatever his eschatology might have been, I'm sure we'd love to pick his brain about the millennium and all that, but this we can be sure of. He knew his body would be raised from the dead. He knew it. Do you know that? Do you think that way about the life to come? Church, what if we thought and dreamed and even planned for the life to come in the same way we think and dream and plan for that promotion we want or the vacation we're going to take or retirement or even death? Think about the time, energy, and money we put to making a last will and testament so that everyone knows who should get our earthly stuff when we're dead. And meanwhile, we rarely stop to think, you know, we are coming back. Someday, I think Carrie will understand this, but for now, this conversation has always frustrated her a great deal. She's asked that I I never get a motorcycle. Uh, They're too dangerous, which I understand. I understand, so I've told her I respect that. I'll honor your request. But in the new heavens and the new earth, I will get that motorcycle, and I will ride that thing to the glory of God. And she always rolls her eyes, and she says to me, okay, there won't be motorcycles in the life to come. And then we're in a theological debate, because all of a sudden, you know, I I just say, well, you want to bet? Because listen, they're designed for bodies, and we will have those in the life to come. This is how all of our fights go, I promise you. It's like, Carrie, what do you think those streets of gold are for? Church, in your small groups this week, I want you guys to talk and dream of the life to come. What will it be like to see Jesus face to face and to know him personally? How will your life be different knowing that you will never die again? Listen, engineers, What are you going to build in the life to come? The new heavens, new earth artists, what are you going to create in the life to come? Deep down in our souls, we need this steadfast hope and this sincere gratitude for the simple fact that God has become a man. He has come down to suffer with us under the sun. He has died, he has risen again so that we can too if you just stop and you consider the fact that that is true, friends, it has a way of cutting through all the rest, does it not? The kind of life that Paul is talking about down here really is akin to a grueling race. As we've seen, it is akin to a battle or a conflict that takes great courage and strength to endure, but if we are going to endure, then church, few things will matter more than our mindset. We need minds that are captivated by this singular focus on the upward call of God in Christ Jesus.